Our children may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. For those that remain here in person and on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Be looking at verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. O Lord Almighty, we need your help. We need your help to understand what these words mean, what it means that you have done these things, and what it means for us to confess that you are Lord in word and in deed. Help us then by sending your Spirit to give us understanding and conviction and illumination and strength to entrust ourselves afresh to Jesus and follow where he leads. Do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you have a song or a poem that whenever you hear it or see it, that it just, it just strikes you? right where you are. Whatever mood you were in, you find yourself in a different place. There are all sorts of songs that do this to me. Some, maybe not so helpfully. I remember these 80s ballads, you know, that take you back to the angst of high school and middle school, and I I don't want to go back there. There's this, this song by the Decemberists called June Hymn. It's not a Christian song, but it's just this, this ode to the coming of summer in the world, in the the subtle and simple beauty that that brings. And it just, I, every time I hear it, I'm just happier. I'm reminded of the glory of God in creation. And it's amazing the power of such words and such songs that they have, that, that they can lift up beautiful things in, in just mere words. They do it in a way that affects us deeply in body and in soul, that that change our our mindset, that change our perspective, that change our standing and stature in that moment. Words are powerful things. There are hymns that I've sung growing up that I still, I haven't sung in years and still remember the words to. And they still remind me those eternal truths. 
And here in this passage is the foundation of Paul's admonition to have this mind among yourselves. He appeals to what is very likely an early Christian hymn, a song. Whether he wrote it or uh, adapted it for uh, his letter here is irrelevant. It's still inspired of God and relevant to us. But he takes this poetic description of who Christ is and what he has done, and he lays it out there as all the encouragement we need to have the very mind of Christ among ourselves because this hymn lifts up the beauty and the glory of Jesus and invites us to consider him afresh and anew in a way that affects us deeply in body and in soul, in our perspective on life and in what we think and feel and do. So do I have a great grand theological point for you this morning? I have simply the goal that we would behold Jesus and that it would change us, that we would follow wherever he leads. And so we're going to consider this morning the the humiliation of Christ that we see in verses 6 through 8. And we're going to consider the exaltation of Christ that we see in verses 9 through 11. And we're going to conclude with some considerations of how does this help us live out what we see in verse 5, this admonition to have among ourselves the mind of Christ. So first, let's consider this the humiliation of Christ. Humiliation is not a popular topic these days unless it's you and those who think like you humiliating those who think differently. But when we are the target of humiliation, we don't like that. It's like, you know, when your friends or your parents or your kids take that embarrassing photo of you, and threaten to post it on social media, and there's this big argument that ensues because we don't like our embarrassment and our shame and our humiliation to be put on display for all to see and comment on. We'd prefer to delete those pictures altogether, but not Jesus. His humiliation is on display and lifted up for all to see and consider. And, and for us to, to really even begin to apprehend, much less comprehend, the, the scope of Jesus' humiliation, we have to understand who Christ was and who Christ is. That tells us in verse 6 that he was in the form of God. This word morphe in the Greek refers not to like some shape-shifting magic, but that he was of the same essence and the same substance of God. He was divine, enthroned on high in the highest place, worthy of all glory and honor and blessing and praise. And yet, he did not consider that equality with God, a thing to be grasped. 
Consider this for a moment. That Jesus, seated in the highest place, existing for all eternity, didn't need anything. Didn't need anyone. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community and in perfect joy and in perfect love were utterly and completely fine. But he did not count that high position. He did not count that privileged place. He did not count that divine glory and power and honor something to be grasped and to held on, be held onto, white-knuckled in fear of losing it. No, instead, we see that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He saw that his high and glorious position meant giving, not getting. And so he didn't hoard his power. He didn't hoard his glory and he didn't hoard his love. But he made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. We have to understand what this means here. Some of your translations may even say that he emptied himself. We have to be clear here that in taking on the form of a servant, Jesus didn't give up his divinity. This is a strange and mysterious thing. We have a hard time thinking, how, how can you go from a high place to a low place without giving, giving something up? Without losing your title or losing your crown or losing your, the respect or your place. But, but here, Jesus took added to himself. There is a, a subtraction, as one theologian put it, by way of addition. He added to himself. He took on the form of a servant adding to his divinity, humanity, merging into one person, these two distinct natures, the divine and the human. And this is beyond explanation and beyond figuring out that God would make himself man. That he would take on our frail and humble estate and enter into our world, enter into our suffering, enter into our burdens and misery, and take all those things upon himself. And yet, this is what he did being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, it's the same word the very essence of what it means to be human, the very nature of what it means to be a man or a woman, in flesh and blood, he added to his divine nature. And so whatever you have experienced, whatever you have suffered, whatever you have endured, whatever paths you've had to walk, whatever struggles you have encountered, 
When Jesus took on human form, he took all of those things on too. And yet, he remained obedient to God even to the point of death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. It's a strange thing. We don't always consider the obscenity of the cross. You're walking around the grocery store and you came upon somebody with a beautiful necklace on that had a little guillotine hanging from it. You might pause and go, what would possess you to do such a thing? And yet the the cross was the, the, the Roman system, not just to kill someone and execute them, but to humiliate them, to lift them up as an obscenity to the world so that every eye would behold them and would fear that fate and would have nothing to do with whatever it is that they had done to cause such offense to the Roman Empire. Just as the guillotine was put in place to to stoke the crowds, to humiliate the aristocracy, to just dehumanize everyone in a much more vicious way. The Roman crucifixion utterly humiliated all those who suffered that fate. Jesus was willing not just to die, but to suffer an obscene death for us. What the humiliation of Christ does, one of the many things that it teaches us, is it teaches us that there is no place in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our words, or in our deeds for prideful Self-sufficiency. Because you understand, Jesus did all of these things not because he needed to, not because he had to. He did this for his people. How desperate is your sinful condition that it requires that kind of sacrifice, that kind of humiliation, that kind of obscene Suffering and shame. What do you bring to the table? Do you think that God came to seek and save you because you are better than everyone else? Because he didn't have to come as far to get you, it wasn't as difficult? Why do you grumble and complain? Why do you stand around and judge others for not measuring up to your expectations? Do you not see who Christ is and what he has done for you? Why would you minimize your sin? Why would you try to make yourself feel better? Why would you take your eyes off of Jesus who so loved his people? That he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing to serve you, even unto death. 
There is only one human being in all of history that deserved every accolade, that deserved every affirmation, that could have stood on the highest place and cast judgment and aspersions upon wicked and sinful people. And it was not you. It was not me. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he deserved all, he chose nothing. For your sake. So that you would not have to bear that guilt. So that you would not have to bear that shame. So that you would not have to think that the miseries and the sufferings and the struggles and the trials and the tribulations of this life are all there is for you. God's love for you goes so much deeper. Christ's humiliation ought to bring you to the end of yourself. You might behold him. This is what our Heavenly Father did. For when we consider the exaltation of Christ, we have to understand what it is that God did did in lifting him up to the highest place. When we think about exaltation, or at least what I do, maybe you're like me, it's hard for me to separate that from earning accolades, like the Olympics. <laughs> you work really hard, you, you suffer, you practice, you, you strive, and then there's this big competition, and you win, and you get to be on the highest platform, your flag gets raised, your song gets played, and everybody looks at you, and you are exalted. Think of exaltation as a prize to win. As a, as a thing to strive for. But here, when it says that in verse 9, that God has highly exalted him, it's not in the sense of a reward. As if Jesus' suffering somehow earned this exaltation. This being lifted up to the the highest place is rather a vindication of all that Christ said and did. That what he accomplished in bearing the sins of his people on the cross, that what he accomplished in dying the death that his people deserved, did actually have power did actually fulfill God's purpose, did actually save sinners. And so being lifted up to the highest place is not a reward because Christ earned it, though he could have earned every reward. It is a vindication that in everything Christ said and in everything Christ did, it was effective and powerful for you. And so being given this name that is above every name is something glorious. What name do you think that is? What would it be like to hear the name that's better than every name? I always joke around when I see somebody else named Jeff. I was like, best name ever. But it's not as glorious as it may be. And yet, the text tells us what the name is. There's going to come a time when everyone will have 
to admit that Jesus has the name that's above every name because they will have to bow and call him Lord. This is significant. In the New Testament Greek, the word that we translate Lord is the Greek word kyrios. It can be used sometimes just to say respect, sir. But when it's used in reference to Jesus or in reference to God, it, it means something very different. And it's always clear in the context what's going on. Because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that word kyrios is used to translate another word. The name of God, often pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh. We're not sure exactly how to pronounce it. Y-H-W-H would be the English transliteration of it. But this is the name of God that he gave to Moses when he said at the burning bush, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am is coming to save them. Tell my people, Jehovah, Yahweh, I will deliver them. And it's under that name that God delivered his people. It's under that name that God rescued them from slavery. It's under that name that God lifted them up to be their own nation and their own people. And it's under that name that God promised that they would live with him forever and ever. And though they suffered exile and every humiliation, it was under that name that they held the promise. God would yet redeem his people. And it was under that name that he did. For it's that name that is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find here that not only is he of the same essence as God, he is God. That's what that means. You can't have God's divine essence and be something other than he is God. That ought to give us pause. I remember after the invasion of Iraq, watching the Iraqis throw chains around the statue of Saddam and tear it down. Because he was no longer a threat. He was a conquered tyrant. A conquered king. A crucified king is of no threat to you. It might be chicken soup for your soul when you're feeling down. That God loved you enough to die for you. But a crucified king is no threat to you. But Jesus is no mere crucified king. He is raised from the dead ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from that place, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And there is not a one of us here, there is not a person who has existed who will not have to face that divine king and acknowledge that he and he alone is Yahweh. He is Lord. And this hymn reminds us that whether it's now or before his judgment seat, your knee will bow to him as Lord. No one is exempt. 
And so in the exaltation of Christ, we see a confrontation of our tendency to exalt ourselves or other things in the place that Jesus alone deserves. This was the sin of our first father and mother because they believed the lie that if you eat the fruit, you can be like God. And it's the lie that we have believed again and again and again that if we get enough money, We can be lifted up to the highest place. If we have enough pleasure, we will feel transcendent up into the the highest realms. If we have uh, enough praise from others and they think well of us, then we'll have everything that we need to overcome the miseries of this life. And so we twist even good things and pervert them from their intended purposes to serve us. And we make our spouses and our children serve our interests to lift us up. We make our coworkers and our bosses and our jobs work for our sense of fulfillment. And when we don't find it, we cast them aside and we seek something else. But in the exaltation of Christ, we have a message that comes through loud and clear. A message we heard before when Dr. Noble came. You are not your own. There is a king. And he lives and reigns forever. And you belong to him. And everything that you say, and everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you feel ought to be given and loving service to the one who loved you to seek you and save you, to lift you up and to bring you to himself. So what does that mean? How do we live that out? How does that help us have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus? It gets at what we think the good life is. When you think about the good life, what is it? We tend to think about the good life in terms of comfort, in terms of stability, safety, and security, and having our needs met. And yet our needs always seem to want more. And we pursue all sorts of things that actually end up being very bad patterns for what the good life is. We indulge greed thinking that having and possessing more will give us the good life. But we become twisted and selfish and greedy. We become addicted to things that brought pleasure and happiness. But then we become enslaved to drink or to pornography or to whatever it is that has its claws in you. And we become just shadowy shells of ourselves. 
these things that we thought could grant us access to the good life, more money, more comfort, more peace, more whatever, more friends, more social media accounts, think that we can somehow find in these things access to the good life. But here in this passage, what Paul is saying, that the only pattern for the good life is Jesus Christ himself. But the pattern he gives us is not the pattern we want. For Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And he lived that out before us. And he's telling us again and again and again that the good life is not found in exalting yourself and striving and scrambling to get and attain to the highest place. The good life is found in stepping in to the misery, to the suffering, to the humiliation that we might share in the sufferings of Christ. And trust that God himself will exalt us. We want so badly to avoid humiliation in this life. We want so badly to rise above the suffering and the sadness and the grief. And and I understand why. I hate it. And we have had a lot of grief. Some I don't even know about. I was counting. Just the number of people I have buried this year alone who died far before their time. How many in our midst have lost those tragically? Close to them. How many are suffering under illness, suffering under threat of job loss? How many are, are full of fear and dread? How many are seeing the, those that they love dearly run away from the Lord, watching the things that they once thought were, were fine, crumbling before them, whether relationships with parents or children or spouses? It's easy for us to think that in those sufferings and in that humiliation, we are on the path to destruction. It is not so. The nails that pierced the hands and feet of our Lord, the spear that tore open his side, those wounds did not disappear when he rose from the dead. But those wounds were no longer marks of humiliation or obscenity or shame. Those were marks of victory, of resurrection, and of the power and love of God for his people. No matter what you may be enduring, he can turn your sufferings into trophies of his grace too. You cannot avoid the path of suffering in this life. You don't have to seek it out. You don't have to enjoy it. You don't have to like it. God himself hates it.
But that's not the end for you. That's not your fate in Christ. That is not all that God has for you. The good life, the truly good life, you can never find it here. Our sinful hearts will always twist, will always pervert, will always distort. So in this life, God is teaching us to follow Jesus, to follow in the way he leads and the way he led is the way to humble ourselves, to have his mind among ourselves, to be willing to enter into grief, to enter into lament, to enter into suffering for the sake of Christ, with the good news of Christ, knowing that the Lord Jesus would not call you to walk a path that he cannot lift you up out of. But we cannot exalt ourselves. And this is the lesson that is so hard for us to learn. I want to fix everything. I so desperately want to fix everything. I'd like to think it's the engineer in me, but I think it's the other way around. That's why I studied engineering, because I want to fix everything. I want to fix me. I want to fix my family. I want to fix you. I want to lift you up, but I can't, and you can't either. There is only one who can restore us to what he made us to be. And so Christ did not clamor and strive and fight and yell and scream to be exalted before the eyes of men, and nor should we. But he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. He lifted him up to the highest place. And he will lift us up too to be with him forever. Do you not know, Paul says elsewhere, you will judge the angels. You will be seated on thrones with Christ to rule and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But this will be a work of God and not of you. And so there is a freedom here. Too often we... we We serve and we work and we strive in order to find some freedom from whatever it is we're suffering. We become angry and bitter when it doesn't work. There's a freedom in this promise. There's a freedom in this path. There's a freedom in walking the path that Jesus leads us down, in which humiliation always comes before exaltation. There's a freedom to serve wherever we are. For the glory of Christ and trust that God will vindicate his people at the right time. So how then, how does this work? How do you navigate that? How do you bear some of the burdens that you are bearing that are too heavy? And this brings us back to the beginning. The only point You can't on your own. But you're not on your own. This hymn calls us to gaze on the glory and majesty of Christ and to to follow where he leads. You've been to a wedding, right? Everybody stands up, the music starts playing, and all eyes go on the bride. Everybody is looking there, every single person, except one. 
You know who's not looking at the bride? The bride. He's looking at the groom. There's a sense in which we, as God's people, are left here in this place, are left in this miserable estate because there are people watching who are miserable too. They don't know. They don't know what's glorious. They don't know the promises of God. They don't know what is real. And we're called not to fix it, not to master it, not to lift ourselves up, not to stomp them down, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That as we follow him and walk towards him, that we will in our lives manifest not our glory, but his, as he does his work in us and lifts his people up to the highest place. May God do this, that we may have the mind of Christ among us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to see Jesus. To know his glory, his majesty, his righteousness, and his holiness. To know his great love for us that would cause him to leave this high place. Lord, help us to see Jesus and may it change us. Affect us so deeply. In body and soul, in word and deed. In our minds, wills, and emotions. That we might be a people who live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.